Thank you, choir. Great. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 12 to 17 this morning. Colossians 3, 12 to 17. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black ESV Bible in the pew back in front of you. And grab that, turn to page 984. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. That's where we're going to be this morning. I, uh, I love fo- the game of football, and I think I'm going to lead off with that every sermon, whether it has any connection <laughs> to the passage or not. Uh, but no, uh, it really does connect. Uh, I, I love the game of football, and it, in truth, I love sports in general, and I like watching sports, but there's something particularly interesting and unique about the game of football, and, and it's that every single person on the field matters in every play. If you think about that, it's kind of unique in regards to football. If the bases are empty and a batter steps up in baseball and hits a pop fly to right field, for the most part, if everybody stood still except for that right fielder, everything's going to be all right and the play will go on as normal. The batter will be out and so on and so forth. But in football, that's not true. Every single person on the field during every single play has a very important task that they must accomplish. They have to do that task. They have to perform that job. And all together, when you build all of those pieces together, it accomplishes one common goal. Each person plays a part in the whole group accomplishing that one common goal. I think most sports would say that about themselves, but in football, every single play, that's true. Now, as we've been going through the book of Colossians, particularly here in chapter 3, we've really been asking the question, what is a heavenly-minded church? What does a heavenly-minded church really look like, if we're to be honest? What what would that that look like if we were truly to be described as a heavenly-minded church? Well, at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul said it's first, it's demonstrated in what we value, how we think, where our hope is. It's demonstrated in in our value system, how we make decisions. Then last week, we talked about how the things that it's not. A heavenly-minded church is certainly not one that partakes in fleshly desire, in backbiting, in fleshly talk. It's a church that's becoming what we already are in Christ. We're making it true as we live it out. So it's both what we value and it's also things that we're not. We're not fleshly people. In our text this morning, Colossians 3, starting in verse 12, Paul's going to take us to the next step. In fact, he's going to wrap up this little section here by further defining what a heavenly-minded church is. Before we talk more about that, I want to read our text, starting in verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, Forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, uh, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father 
through him. Now remember, Paul has been reminding the church at Colossae, and really really us for that matter, that they've been transferred from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. So it's, they've been given a new family, essentially, to belong to. They've, they've been reconciled with God. Where, where once they stood before God as an enemy of God, having the wrath of God on them, they're now, they've now been, through Christ, forgiven of that. They've been reconciled to Him instead. So now Paul is compelling the church in chapter 3 to begin looking even now at this family that Jesus has created. We've been looking at what it means to be a heavenly-minded church, as I mentioned and the last, this is the last section in that part before we move on to what a, fa- what a heavenly-minded household looks like. But instead of just talking about what we abstain from and, and looking at those things, let's actually look at the play that's been called for us. What part do we as individuals and together play in this role of being a heavenly-minded church? That Christ has, has built here. You, the first thing that he mentions here, he says, a heavenly-minded church exhibits the characteristics of Christ. A heavenly-minded church exhibits the characteristics of Christ. Look at verse 12 a little bit closer. 12 and 13. He says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must Forgive. Now, it's probable that these five characteristics that he lists here in verse 12 are meant to be the opposite of the characteristics he listed in the previous passage that we talked about last week in verses 5 and 8. There's characteristics in both verses 5 and 8 that are the things that you must put off, that you must do away with. And now he's listing the things that you must take part in. And they're probably the opposite of one another. It's probably his intention. But when we see these characteristics, where, where we see them modeled for us is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Paul tells the, the church of Rome in Romans 13, 14, he says that we are to put on Christ. That's what he tells them, put on Christ. Well, what does that phrase mean? It's kind of weird, put on Christ. What does that, what does that actually mean? Well, in Colossians 3, 12, and following, he's defining what it means to actually put on Christ. What that looks like to put on Christ. What does it mean? Well, Paul's depicting that like clothing, you would put on the very nature of Christ. In the past passage, he's told you to put away anger, wrath, malice, hatred, all of those kinds of things. We're to put off, we're to take them off, just like clothing. You're actually changing the clothes from the old man to putting on the clothes of the new man. And what does that mean? That means you're performing the virtues that characterize Jesus Christ. You are doing and performing the very virtues that we see modeled for us in the person of Jesus Christ. So I want to go through each one of these that he lists here and talk about what they they mean. The first thing that he says there is put on compassionate hearts. And it's, it's literally bowels of mercy. Well, that'll help your devotional life, won't it? I know that just improves everybody's devotional life there. Bowels of mercy. You ask each other, how are your bowels of mercy this morning? (laughs) There's a reason that I bring that up. Bowels of mercy. If you're reading the ESV like I am, you have compassionate hearts there. 
And, and, and you might be thinking, become a compassionate person. Be a compassionate person. And that's not wrong. But what Paul intends is something a little bit stronger than that. He's saying down to the very guts of you. Be characterized by compassion. That your very core be compassionate. Swap your guts out, in other words, for guts that are merciful. Be merciful to your very core. Second, he lists their kindness. Paul tells us in Romans 2 that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So we're putting on the nature of God by putting on the nature of Christ. So what then does our kindness look like if we're putting on God's kindness, Christ's kindness? Well, that kindness that God showed us is meant to lead us to repentance. So what is the kindness that we're to put on for other people? It's the same. It's to lead them to repentance. So in other words, we are reflecting the very attitude that God has shown to us the character that He has shown to us, the kindness that He has given to us, we're reflecting that out to the people around us, meant to lead them to repentance as well. Third, we have their humility. So Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, that Jesus humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if we're putting on Christ's own attitudes and affections, then we are to consider our own lives as not that valuable. That we're to be obedient to God, even to the point of death. That we're to consider other people's lives as more important than our own. We're patterning our own humility after the humility of Christ. So as Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to God, even to the point of death, so then we are to put our own lives in service to him and become obedient to him even unto death. This is true biblical humility. Fourth there, he lists meekness which sometimes will actually be translated humble or hu humility. It's very difficult to discern the difference between the two, and some might even have their gentleness, which gets a little bit more at the difference. Um, but essentially the definition is not, not being overly impressed with yourself. It's essentially it, not being overly impressed with your own importance. So once again, we look at the qualities of Christ who actually had something to be impressed about. He actually had something to be impressed about. And yet in Matthew 21, Jesus is depicting, depicted as riding on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. And there fulfills Zechariah's prophecy where he uses the same word for meekness uh, that telling us that Jesus would come to us humble, meek. Mounted on a donkey. Last here is patience. In 1 Timothy 1.16, Paul calls himself the foremost of sinners. But then he says this, But I have received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul sees his own life 
as an example of Christ's patience. Because Christ has become patient with him, willing to endure his stubborn heart as he does with the rest of us. So what does our patience look like? So hopefully what you're seeing in these virtues that that Paul's listing is that, first of all, these are the virtues of Christ that he himself has modeled for us when he was here on earth. But second, if we are his body, then we're to model these virtues for everybody else. We're to model these patterns of behavior for our own brothers and sisters in Christ so that we're not just the beneficiaries of Christ's virtues of his forgiveness, of his mercy, of his tenderness, of his kindness. But we're actually the givers of his kindness. Then Paul jumps to verse 13, where we get the results of the church putting on the characteristics of Christ. What, What does he say there? That we bear one another's burdens. We bear with one another. And we forgive one another. And so this certainly raises the question then, When is the right time to leave a church if the biblical exhortation that we're given is bearing with one another? When becomes the right time to leave a church? That's quite possible that if this verse were taken as seriously as it's written, we would have far fewer churches without pastors and far fewer churches that divide over simple disagreements. In a fast food society, we treat church membership as one more thing to be consumed. I'll I'll get my membership at this church, but when I get upset, or when the leadership makes a decision that I don't like, or when the people offend me, or maybe when the people find me out, or when leadership makes a decision that I don't like or disagree with, or or maybe I have a run-in with somebody in the congregation, I'll just go down the street, there's mosey on down there, and I'll find church membership there. We treat church membership like, or churches maybe, like Lowe's or Home Depot. Where do you get your home improvement products? I I guarantee you that you go to one particular store over another, perhaps because it's closer to you. Maybe it smells more like sawdust than the other one, which is always a good thing. You want it? I love the smell of sawdust. Who doesn't? (laughs) Maybe the lighting is better in one place or another. Maybe one doesn't have a grumpy lady at the, at the customer service desk that you can't stand to deal with. We treat church the same way. Bearing with one another, what's that mean? Surely it doesn't mean that i got to put up with all this nonsense. No, that's actually exactly what it means. It, it literally means putting up with one another. That's exactly what he says here, putting up with one another. It's written with the assumption that it's going to be difficult for you and it's against your nature. That it's not something that you're given to easily. It's written with the assumption that there are easier paths to take than staying in a church. The plain and simple truth of church membership is that it is the path of most resistance when it comes to attending a church. Being a part of a church community means that you are actually entering into the fray. That you're engaging and encountering friction 
But the friction allows you to demonstrate the attitudes and affections of the very Spirit of God that He has put within you, the Spirit that completely governed Christ without a sin nature. Those attitudes and affections are the same ones that Christ was governed by. So when one member wakes up on the wrong side of bed, or somebody put sandpaper on their toilet seat, or put a bee in their bonnet, you have the opportunity to magnify the name of Christ and exemplify the virtues of Christ to them and remind them of why we're here. Heavenly-minded church exhibits the characteristics of Christ. Second, a heavenly-minded church is authentic. A heavenly-minded church is authentic. Look at verse 14. He says, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So love is not tacked on at the end of this here. Paul's exhortation to the church has love as a glue that holds everything together. It's interwoven in amongst all of the virtues that he lists here. It is the thing which binds everything together in perfect harmony. But verse 14, as I read this, changes everything about the previous list. To me, when you read verse 14, if you read it right, it changes the entirety of the list that we just read in 12 and 13. See, the the commands that he has given up to this point of the virtues, they can all be faked. You can even fool yourself into thinking that you are actually doing these virtues. You can say, oh man, I, I forgave that person a long time ago. I have forgiven them. Oh, brother, I want to I help you. I want to bear with your burdens. I want to struggle with you. I want to fight with you through this. I want to help you through this really difficult time. But, but Paul comes back on the back end of these virtues, and he says, look, if, if, if it's not governed by love, it's worthless. You can fake humility, and most people will never know. You can fake meekness, and patience, and kindness, and even compassion, and you can fool probably everyone in this room. But Paul isn't letting us off the hook with mere legalistic pursuits of these virtues by saying, yes, I was kind today. Yes, I was patient today. Yes, I was doing all of those things today. He says the root of these virtues that you're doing, if it isn't love, then it's completely worthless. You're you're kind to this person but do you love them? You're bearing with this person's burdens, but do you love them? You're playing the role of meek and humble, but is it because of your love for the brothers or sisters? Only you and God know that. Nobody else really knows what's in your heart. But most often, time will tell. Everyone in this room knows what the Southern culture is like. Or at least you should by now know what the Southern culture is like. Everyone is so nice. Everyone says hi. (laughs) In Texas, it was the same way. If you walk by someone and you don't say hi to them, you're rude. Or maybe you're from up north. Right? If you walk by someone and you don't say hi, it's like, well, what's wrong with him? Wow. 
When you're working in your yard, you need two people. One is doing the work, and the other is just standing in the yard waving at people as they drive by. <laughs> just, how's it going? Hey, everybody. It's, it's totally true. I feel like a jerk if I'm like working in my yard, got my back to the yard, and I hear a car drive by, and I don't turn around and just wave to them as they drive by. Right? What's wrong with him? <laughs> You'll drive by somebody picking groceries out of the, their back seat, and you know what I'm talking about. You got the groceries all the way up from your wrist, all the way up to your elbows. Try to get it all in one trip. Go through the loops. Put them all right here, especially if you're going into a dorm room. You know what I'm talking about. Get them out of your car. You got to load them all up. Get the bread on the end so you don't squish it, right? So you got them all in there. You got boxes up to your chin that you're carrying in like this. And as soon as somebody drives by, you stick up the little finger right there. Like, like, like I'm, still, I'm still polite. I'm still nice. But now you tell me, with all these overly kind attitudes and polite gestures, does gossip still happen? Will businesses still cheat you? Will people still slander you? Why is that? If they're overly nice and they're so kind to me in person, why is it that as soon as I turn my back, they can talk bad about me or they can demean me to other people? Why is that? Because love wasn't the reason they were doing any of it. Love wasn't the true motivation of their heart. It was merely a sense of duty, an obligation, keeping up appearances. So for too long, our churches have this false sense of unity. We're keeping up the attitude of kindness and meekness without the true sense of love. We often define unity more like uniformity. Let's talk about the things that we agree on. Let's just agree to not talk about the things that we disagree on. But that's false unity. That's not true unity. True unity is only sensed in the midst of disagreement. When the two sides can come to the table and each one knows how the other feels or at least is seeking to understand how the other feels. Truly seeking to understand where the person is coming from. It's assuming that this person on the other side of the table loves Jesus and wants to honor him with their lives. And the two sides can sit down and each can truly want what is best for the other person. And the conversation is seasoned with kindness and humility and patience. But make no mistake about it, it's love that is holding all those things together. It's love that's ruling that conversation. And only you can know if that's in your heart for your brothers or sisters. There's no church where love is always present. There's no church where that's always present. There's no church where love governs all the disagreements. But let's be clear. The Lord calls us to repent. Through His Word, calls us to repent of any unloving attitude towards our brothers or sisters. That means both a vertical confession. Lord, I confess this was my attitude. I may have done these characteristics. I may have tried to appear as though I was living out these characteristics, but love wasn't the undergirding factor. But then there's a horizontal confession as well. Brother or sister, we need to talk. 
I've acted this way towards you, but I don't know that I've felt a sense of love to you. I acted this way more out of obligation or out of a sense of duty. If we can't bring ourselves to own up to our own sins in front of our brothers or sisters, then revival, health as a church, growth is forever down the way, if it ever comes at all. Third, a heavenly-minded church rests in and proclaims the truth. A heavenly-minded church rests in and proclaims the truth. Look at verse 15 and 16. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. So I think verse 15 there, if you look at it, is best taken to mean, let the kind of peace that is yours by virtue of what Christ has done rule your hearts. Let that kind of peace rule your hearts. So the the peace that was attained for us by Christ with God is to be the guiding principle for us in our relationships, in all of our horizontal relationships. That vertical alignment that has taken place between us and God should be the determining factor in all of our horizontal relationships. Let me explain that a little bit more. So Christ took the hostility between us and God and he destroyed it. He made peace between us and God by virtue of his death. And it seems what Paul is telling the Colossians that this peace between you and and God is to rule your hearts. This peace is the reason that you are called together in a body. That peace that you have with God mutually, you, you all have it with God. If you are a professing Christian, you have that peace with God. That peace is what brings us together in one body. And so by creating peace between God and his people, Christ brought them all together in one cohesive group. And this is what Paul says not only has a spiritual reality, it's not only spiritually true between us and God, but it also should have an impact on our interpersonal relationships, all the things around us. Consider this for a moment, just for a moment. The peace that I have with God is the kind of peace that I need that will address all the other strife in my life. In other words, if I have peace with God, then I'm good. Everything else pales in comparison. If I don't have that, well, then I've got nothing. I don't care how many good relationships I have. If I have peace with God, if I'm at peace with God himself, then everything else can work its way out, right? I had a friend who, uh, every time you were in a tough situation... Every time you're looking at something in the future and you're thinking, i got to deal with this tomorrow and it's going to be really bad. This person's going to react poorly to what I'm going to tell them. He would always tell you, his words of comfort were always, they can't take away your birthday. <laughs> and it's it's funny, funny, but it's true. Like, <laughs> it's oddly comforting. Everything short of death itself, uh, they can't take away your birthday. At the end of the day, all the disagreements you might have with, with somebody... You go home, and, and once a year, you're still going to celebrate your birthday. They can't take it away. How bad could it be, right? Um, well, in a much grander way, all of the strife that I could possibly face, including life-threatening strife like cancer or maybe even imprisonment or whatever, 
They cannot take away the restored relationship that I have with God through Christ. No one can take that away. It's not going anywhere. So let that thought, let that attitude, let that understanding hold sway over all your emotions, over all your relationships, over all strife, over all conflict that could arise. I have peace with God. No matter what, no one can take that away from me. So it brings you tremendous encouragement. But now look at it from the other side of the coin. Look at it from the other direction. That person that you have a hard time tolerating, the person that rubs you the wrong way maybe, Christ saw fit to place them in the body. He saw fit to put them maybe even next to you on the pew. Christ himself welcomes this person to his table. God saw fit for the wrath that he had toward this person to kill it on his son on the cross. Now, if the God of the universe has terminated his wrath for this person on his own son, why would you hold a grudge? Is your sense of justice more heightened than God himself? Do you have a more nuanced, sophisticated view of justice than God himself? The peace of Christ rules our hearts when it not only puts all of our problems in their proper order, but it also governs how we treat our brothers and sisters. What I hope you're seeing so far here in the book of Colossians is that this gospel that we believe in is both personal and corporate. It's personal and corporate. It's personal in the sense that you have to make a decision to follow Christ. And that goes for anybody in here who has not yet made a decision to follow Christ. You have to make a decision on whether or not you want to follow Christ. We believe that God created you. That he is holy and that he has a right to govern. And then instead of worshiping him, we have sinned against him and deserve divine wrath. Now you can make a choice as to whether or not to follow Christ with your whole life, allowing him to absorb the wrath of God on your behalf. To submit to his rule and his authority over your life. Or you can face that wrath on your own. But it's a personal decision that you have to make. It is personal. But it's also corporate. You have joined a body, a church, a local body here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. And some people are sweet and dear to you, like water flowing over the rocks. And other people are as rough as sandpaper. But you realize that both perform the same function of smoothing you. Both are used by God. Your faith in Christ is fleshed out in the body of Christ. It's grown and it's matured in the body of Christ. It's God's way of conforming you and shaping you into the image of Christ that he eventually wants you to be. You're supposed to have run-ins with people. You're supposed to have disagreements. You're supposed to have difficulties. 
that you experience with one another. You're supposed to expose your differences to one another so that you both can be made mature in Christ over the years. But it can only happen if the default gear for us is peace. Not fake peace. Real peace. Grounded in love that he mentions in verse 14. Then in verse 16, he says, the word of Christ should dwell in us richly. And the word of Christ here probably is more something like the message of Christ. That word for word could be translated word or it could be translated message. And it's probably more, it's probably better to think of it as the message of Christ should dwell in us richly. It's a way of saying the gospel itself, this message that we profess faith in, that we believe that he mentioned in the first chapter is growing and is bearing fruit all over the world. This message of Christ, this gospel, should dwell in us richly. He's referring to the gospel. And he's saying it should dwell in y'all richly. If we had the Southern English Standard Version to say y'all, it should dwell in y'all richly. It's the plural. All right, I really do. I'm petitioning for a Southern English Standard Version. (laughs) But he defines what it means for the gospel to dwell in us richly. Look at at what he says there in 16. He says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now, admonish is not a word that we commonly use around, uh, just kind of floating around our vernacular today. But admonish literally means to warn or reprimand someone firmly. So Paul isn't describing an environment of church community that's always chipper where you always come to church with a smile on regardless of what happened in the car. That's not the kind of environment that he's describing. He's not talking about a Stepford community where everybody just puts on smiles like everything is okay. He's talking about a covenant community of individuals that gather together because we all believe in Jesus Christ. We all hold the same confession. And we look at this message that is sitting before us bound in leather called the Holy Scriptures. We submit to its authority in our life, both authority to grow us in holiness, to teach us, and to correct us in error. And we do that for one another. That's what it means for the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly. That the correction that we give to one another is found in the Scriptures themselves. And when you think about it, this is a really simple concept. A very simple concept. To let the Word of God speak to us and form us over time. It's inerrant and it's infallible and it has the authority to do all of these things. But that doesn't always happen in our churches. Often there's straying from this Word. It doesn't always happen, though, in the way you might think. There are some churches, sure, that just abandon the Word of God altogether. They just step away from it as if it doesn't exist, and so they stand up and they teach from something else. I saw a sermon one time on TV. It's always a bad place to watch the sermons, I think. Uh, I just, I'm delirious of them, I think. Uh, but I was watching this sermon on TV where the person actually told the story of Les Mis. That was the content of the sermon. Just the whole story of Les Mis. Didn't even give a spoiler alert, just, just put it out there. Here's what he missed. Then he applied it to their lives. They prayed to I don't know whom and then went away. That was it. That was the content of their service. So that certainly there are churches out there that are just stepping away from the word of God entirely. 
But let me just say, there is another category of stepping away from the Word of God that's far more tempting to each and every one of us. I think for the most part, if I were to do that, and we were to just all go away, if I were to do that enough especially, I would be fired. And I should be fired if I did that. But there is a way where we step away from the Word of God that's really tempting to us, and that's to fall into the trap of attractionality, of just attractional churches. We could build a community here together, if we wanted to, where people could hide, where you could come in and not be known by other people. We could require very little for people to join our church. Oh, you say you're a Christian? Okay, fine. I don't want to ask any questions. What you believe is what you believe. That's fine. Okay, let's, let's, let's move on. I could preach from random passages around Scripture that support the things that I want to say to you and never call anybody to repentance. I could do that. As David Helm once said, some preachers use the Bible like a drunk uses a lamppost, more for support than illumination. We could do that. This way of doing church is very attractive to the culture. It requires nothing on the part of the member to be a part of the community. And in the meantime, you get some sage advice from a person standing behind a pulpit that masquerades itself as biblical truth. And you walk away feeling pretty good because at least you have the illusion that you actually read the text and understood what it meant. That you've heard from God this morning. Now, why is that so tempting? Because it brings people in by the truckloads. And when you look at struggling budgets or when you look at pews that are empty, hey, growth is growth, right? It's not growth, that's swelling. Technically, both are the same. Technically. But they're not at all the same. One's growth and one's swelling. One's of God and one's of man. For the word of Christ to dwell in us richly, we're going to have to agree on how we want growth to actually happen in our church. And I don't know about you, but I want to preach from the Bible. Thank you. The basics basics of that is, I don't have anything good to say to you. That's of me. I really don't. I'm 34 years old. Some of you in this room are twice as old as I am. What am I going to tell you that would be sage wisdom for you? Something that you've never heard or never thought about. I don't have anything like that. Frankly, your marriage might even be way better than mine. I have really nothing to tell you that's from me. But the Bible's older than all of us. Some of you are close, I get it. It's okay. I'm just kidding, I'm teasing. That's a joke from a (laughs) 34-year-old. The Bible's older than all of us. If we submit to it, If we let it teach us, well, then we have something to talk about. Then a 22-year-old can admonish a 60-year-old. Then a 34-year-old pastor actually has something to teach and say. So if I do my job, then I am simply a conduit of what God is telling to all of us, me included, through His Word. And if growth happens in this church, and we certainly pray that it does, but if if growth is going to happen, it will be because this church proclaims the gospel in all that it teaches. And that it's not a place to hide. On the contrary, it is a place to be exposed, for all the warts to be made known, for them to be cut off and severed by by the word of God. 
for our good and for his glory. For the word of Christ to dwell in us richly means that we have to teach from it and use it to admonish one another. Now, I have found it. The ever-elusive fourth point in a Baptist sermon. Here it is. You didn't think it was possible, but here's the last and final point. All right? Number four. I don't even know if we could type in number four on our computers, but I think it's going to show up. Uh, A heavenly-minded church is always on mission. A heavenly-minded church is always on mission. Look there at the end of 17 or in verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Paul moves from just inside the church community, now he moves into everything there in verse 17, to all our life. He's not only concerned with life of the Christian inside the Christian community, or in the worship uh, that happens in the church body. Now he's shifting to everything, to everything that happens in our daily life, in our hourly living. Every single thing you do is to be governed by that thought that whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just in our exaltation of Christ that happens here in our worship services. It is literally every moment of our lives as we go outside of these walls. Now, Paul's mentioned several times on several occasions that we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But the implications of that is that we're now ambassadors for his kingdom. That we've been entrusted with the mercies of God, not just to hoard them for ourselves, but to actually reflect them out to the community around us, the people that we come in contact with. That is the attraction of the church. That's it. If you founded an attractional church on that, that'd be okay. That's the attraction that we're supposed to have to the community around us. It's both what we preach in the pulpit and what we live out in the pew. The character of Christ overwhelms our sinful nature and collectively we become a church body who desire not only to worship God but also to bring other people into that worship. That is what missions is, is inviting other people into the worship of God. That's what we're doing. And when we do that, when we live out those virtues bound together in love, we make a really compelling argument for citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. When we invite people into that, something they want to be a part of, down to their core, that's the way we live. That's what it is to be a heavenly-minded church. But now, what does that mean for our church? What does all that mean for Emmanuel Baptist Church? There's certainly a priority on our part. We have to create an environment, foster an environment, that enables these characteristics to be magnified. We have to create an environment, things that we do on a Sunday morning, that allow these kinds of things to flourish in our body. And there's four things that you're going to see laid out over the course of hopefully the next few years even that will become evident over time. There's four things that I think are directly derived from this passage that I think we should be about as a church body. The first is church membership. Some people are going to push back against church membership. And they're going to say, well, I, I don't see the word church member in, in, the, in the Bible. Um, but church membership is very simple. 
It's simply where you declare before this body that meets here on Sunday and before me, the pastor, that you are not only a Christian, but you are also declaring what you stand for. It's just a matter of declaring that. This is what I want to do. I want to submit to you the body so that you can continue to refine me and grow me. And this is what I believe, this is what I hold to. I hold to the things that you hold to. It's also the way of coming to me as your pastor, who by the scriptures am, in, am, am shepherding your soul and saying, I want you to do that. I want you to guide me and teach me. So as long as we're here together, we're going to continue to promote church membership, teach it, make it a vital component of our growth and our health as a church body. Second, Sunday morning small group. It's really difficult to bear one another's burdens, to refine one another, to shape one another. It's difficult to forgive one another if you don't know one another. If you just come on Sunday morning and sit down in the pew for a worship service and then you get up and you go, certainly you're entitled to do that. But it's very difficult to do the things that are laid out for us in Scripture if we don't have that intention on ever getting to know people in our lives and letting them shape us and us shaping them. So we'll continue to promote small groups, Sunday morning small group, because the clear intention of Scripture is that we live in community with one another where we can sharpen one another in this way. So we'll continue to promote that. We'll continue to organize that. We'll continue to make it better and better for the growth of the body, for the health of the body. Third is sacrificial service. And this is just an opportunity for us as individuals, as Christians, and as groups to move out and to give of ourselves entirely to the community around us without ever having anybody pay us back, without ever having anybody ever do anything uh, or, or given to us any favor or anything like that for our service. It will simply be us moving out in small groups and groups of people and serving the community around us. Look, if we're going to reflect the humility of Christ, then we have to put ourselves in positions of service to the community around us. And the last is missional living. We have to get used to sharing the gospel, very, very simply. Telling other people about Jesus. We have to learn to get over our timidity of sharing the gospel. And that may take different forms. Maybe standing on a street corner, maybe walking up to a stranger, or it may simply be talking to your neighbors Amen. about Jesus. So we'll train, we'll continue to model, we'll continue to disciple I don't know exactly what that looks like right now, but it will grow over the years as we continue to get used to this idea of sharing the gospel with people. Now, the best part about these cornerstones, church membership, involvement in a, in a small group with other people, service and sharing the gospel, the best part about those cornerstones is that as you see people come to know Christ around you, and then they ask you that dreaded question that you have no idea how to answer, what do I do now? You have the answer well, let's go join a church. Bring them here. Submit them in membership. Let's join into a small group and let other people mold us and help make us into the image of Christ. Let's go serve the community around us and let's share the gospel that we now believe. It's a very simple pattern of discipleship. It's not check boxes. It doesn't make you a Christian. It assumes that you already are a Christian. We have a very clear agenda 
and a course that's set out for us, a play that has been called. And each and every one of us have a vital part to play in that play that's been called for us. To live as a heavenly-minded church, but to be a heavenly-minded church, we have to all understand and agree on that purpose and hold each other accountable to it. And we're going to pray in just a minute. The worship team is going to come up and lead us in just a minute. And as we sing, I want you to think about where the Lord is leading you, what He wants you to do. If there are people in this congregation that you have either offended or stepped on, or maybe have stepped on you and offended you, I, I know what He's requiring of you. Make it right. Make it right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray for our church, this local body that you have put together. Pray that you would continue to conform us into the image of your Son. Your, your word promises that you will. I don't even doubt that. Lord, I pray that you would help convince us of how important the people around us are. Lord, I pray that you would let that set on our heart. And any disagreements that we have, it wouldn't just be swallowed and buried, but would be dealt with in love, in kindness in humility, in meekness. That in our, even in our confrontations, we would put on the very character of Christ. Pray that that would win the day here. All the conversations that we have with one another, pray they would be seasoned with grace. Not fake, but founded on love. All of us casting our mind to the love that you gave to us on the cross. Lord, I pray you would do that. I pray that Emmanuel Baptist Church would be a bastion of gospel proclamation in the world around us for centuries to come because of the work that the people did here by the help of the Spirit. Move through us. Convict us of sin. Let us deal with it. In Jesus' name, amen.